Jess Van Nostrand, reporting from the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where I recently joined the staff as Assistant Director of Adult Public Programs. Because of this change in my location, I took a New York-centric storyline this month, interviewing author Cheryl Tippins, who recently published a book about the famous New York art hub, the Chelsea Hotel. Cheryl uncovered incredible stories about the creative people who passed through this historic place, so it's a perfect fit for our current monument topic. Thanks for listening! talk about this book inside the dream palace i found that incredibly surprising that yeah. it's an original that its original intentions were actually purposeful to be a place of um creative coming together yeah. and that it wasn't just something that organically sprang out of nothing but that actually there was a, a plan behind that yeah and the plan it was the dream this was the the dream project of an an exile from uh the 1848 uprising in france sort of a proto-socialist, uh, socialist-democratic uh, fellow named Philip Hubert. Um, and they, he, had had to, he and his family had had to flee the revolution in France, and so they had brought uh, their utopian ideas of uh, cr- communal creative life over to the United States where they thought they would easily take root in this idealistic new mm. nation and found that they had a hard time, and it took until he was middle-aged. He came to the United States when he was 19, and only when he was in his mid-50s was he finally, did he finally have enough influence and money and power to create this experiment in creative living right in the middle of New York. And it was an attempt to create a kind of utopian, uh, creative little mini-society in, in the heart of this, the larger city mm-hmm. of, in America. And some really incredible things took place in the hotel, and you share a lot of stories and anecdotes in the book. What to you would be the kind of quintessential result of um, the Chelsea Hotel's ability to bring different kinds of creative minds together? A lot of work was produced. Is yeah. there one that kind of stands out to you? Uh, well, there are so many that yeah. um, it's, it's 130 years old. And, and it's interesting to note that from the very first days, it, it was a creative nexus. It, it became what its creator wanted it to be from the very first generation and sort of uh, snowballed with each generation after that. So I guess one of my favorite uh, uh, stories, it's interesting that you're at the Museum of Modern Art now because there is a, an artist named Arthur B. Davies who is responsible for uh, creating the Armory Show that introduced the United American art uh, lovers to modern art, European modern art. It was a seminal show, of course, mm-hmm. we all, most of us know about. Um, and it still takes place. And it still takes place, yes. And uh, Arthur B. Davies, actually what I hadn't realized was that he created the show uh, for financial reasons. Um, he had a wife upstate who was supporting him in the city, but also in the city he had a secret second wife, um, his model, red-haired model, Edna <laughs> Potter, and she became pregnant, and he didn't have ind- an independent income separately from his wife. He didn't make any money as an artist, like all of these American independent artists made no money, so he couldn't support her. So he, in order to support this new family, secret family of his, he got um, uh, some wealthy society ladies to back him in this huge breakthrough show because he had to have a, make a big show in order to make enough money. 
So that was why we have the armory, because Edna Potter became pregnant and Arthur B. Davies needed to support her. <laughs> Goodness gracious, who knew? But then he, he couldn't hide her su- successfully, so he's had to send her and, and their child off to Europe and go and visit them once a year. And when he did that, he moved into the Chelsea Hotel. So his high society patronesses, um, Abby Rockefeller and Lizzie Bliss and so on, would come and visit him in the Chelsea Hotel. Uh, where he painted his new model, 16-year-old Ruth McIntyre, who would sing arias while he painted her in the center of his studio. <laughs> and he was, a, he was a fanatical collector of modern art and also ancient art from Egypt, ancient you know, relics from Egypt and so on. So his walls were covered with Cezannes and Seurat's, and he, he would introduce... These, these wealthy New York women into his romantic studio. They would take the creaking elevator up to the Chelsea Hotel and come in behind the veil of the artist's studio. And he would teach them how to see modern art and how to collect it. And he was their, their main advisor as they put together their excellent collections of modern art. Uh, but then once, uh, one year, while he was living at the Chelsea, when he went to Europe to visit his secret family, he died of a heart attack. And his wife didn't know what to do with his body because she wasn't an official wife. So she had him cremated and brought the ashes back and gave them to his first wife, who found out about her in that way. Mm. But meanwhile, these society ladies, um, uh, uh, Abby Rockefeller and Lizzie Bliss and so on, were grieving over the loss of this, this great friend of theirs who had taught them so much without whom uh, they know nothing about modern art. So they created the Museum of Modern Art in his honor. Uh, in, in uh, 1929. So that was why why this place is here. And why we're why we're sitting here in <laughs> yeah. the, in MoMA. And there are so many there are so many um, you know relation so many stories relating the Chelsea to because the Chelsea is like the Bohemian workshop behind this museum in particular, as, mm. of course, as well as many others, but especially the Museum of Modern Art because it it uh, you know has it collects the the art of the eras when the Chelsea was at its 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 height. Mm-hmm. What would you consider the heyday of the of the Chelsea? I mean, so many generations came through, mm-hmm. and lots of work and lots of creativity and lots of relationships were yeah. developed there. Um, what would you consider its heyday? Was there a time period where you think it was really doing what it was meant to be doing? Yeah, it really began, um, really started uh, uh, working very well during the Depression era because that was when rents took a nosedive and a lot more artists could afford to live there. And you had an earlier, older generation of writers and artists who could um, mentor the younger ones who were coming in, like Thomas Wolfe. Uh, got a lot of advice from the Spoon River Anthology writer Edgar Lee Masters and so on uh, at the Chelsea because they all lived together and became friends in this one building and that was very important and so they laid a sort of Groundwork, and then um, uh, during and immediately after World War II, when Jackson Pollock was going through and Willem de Kooning and so on, that was really when. And and also because the American artists were going over to Europe, then they were getting foundation money and getting to go over to Europe for the first time. Through word of mouth, the European artists would then come back to New York for exhibitions, and they would stay at the Chelsea because they would have heard about it from mm-hmm. the American artists. So this was a huge blossoming of of interaction and communication 
uh, uh, back and forth across the ocean and, 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 and in the Chelsea. And so I think that was really the heyday, the 50s, the early 60s, when Arthur Miller moved in and was writing his play about Marilyn Monroe. And, you know, it was amazing at that time. Trying, you know, the first, from, from 1880 through 1940, I think uh, I covered that in three chapters. And then I think I had to spend three chapters just writing about the 1960s. Yes. <laughs> well, a lot happened, and a lot of really interesting people were there. Uh-huh. It seems like also architecturally the building went through lots of changes mm-hmm. and that it's sort of it also had different periods of heyday or yes. low times mm-hmm. but it made me think about um, I think what you mentioned a little bit in your book is, is the sort of struggle I mean there was a lot of financial spiritual personal struggle going on with many of these people that came through yeah did that did that occur to you as a common thread was that necessary to some of these people that were struggling or was it more just that they all found themselves in the same place and that the work just came out of that. Well, yeah, the financial struggle, it was certainly a part of life there from the very beginning. I, there, mm. I've seen letters, artist letters in the Smithsonian Institute in, from the 1880s saying that they couldn't pay their rent on the art studio at the top of the building. You know, one fellow was giving away paintings, uh, tonalist paintings that are now worth thousands, of course, to, uh, to buy groceries or to get a trade for a piano for his artist wife. And they couldn't pay the rent even then. And so there has been a tradition from the beginning of the group sort of carrying uh, whatever individuals didn't have the pl- hadn't been paid for their play or their novel yet, or just you know, mm-hmm. uh, in the in the, there are wonderful uh, recollections from the Depression era of every time Edgar Lee Masters would get a book advance or sell a short story, he would go out and take everybody out to dinner at Lu Chow's and so on. So uh, there is a real understanding, always has been at the Chelsea from the beginning and certainly is now, that people have their ups and downs. People are sometimes famous and some sometimes not, and all of this is fleeting, and uh, uh, the way everyone can survive is by getting through it together, and mm. you know, the, the ones who have it support the ones who don't at the moment, and they're likely to switch places soon enough anyway, and there's, there is a very wonderful understanding that uh, it's not fame that, that drives what the people there do, and, it, and it's not notoriety, and it's not even talent. It's a desire to live creatively. So much um, research went into the book, and I love the photographs and the captions explaining them, and just the book. I mean, so many stories. I'm sure you had to omit some oh, of what so you discovered. Many, yes. Do you have a favorite or some of your favorite discoveries from the research end of it? Oh, let's see. Well, it was it, it was an, an astonishing discovery to me to, the, of the utopian origins of, of the hotel. And then, uh, well, I was fascinated by Arthur Miller's response to the hotel. Also, all the way along, the the, the origins of the hotel were forgotten rather quickly. With after a couple of generations, no one who lived there really remembered why the Chelsea had been created. They just now came because it was well located, it was cheap, and it sort of had this tradition, this this uh, you know laissez-faire tradition. Um, but they, they didn't realize why it had been created. And I guess one of, the, one of the things that fascinated me most was that it had been physically designed 
uh, uh, to facilitate creative work. So originally there was a communal dining room on the first floor and there were art studios, of course, all on the top floor. And the roof had gardens and places to give poetry readings and music concerts. And at that time they didn't have electric lights so you could see the stars and so on. And uh, there were places for people to get together and then there were three foot thick walls for privacy. So um, I, this was really fascinating to me that even though people forgot what the building was created for, it continued to function and continues to function in that way. So then you would see that Bob Dylan would move in, and he liked the coziness of it and the privacy of it so that he could write songs and not bother the people next door and so on. And uh, Arthur Miller moved in and was struck by the uniquely classless quality of the society there, which was just the way the building was built. It was built to, to attract all kinds of different people, and no one was valued above anyone else. And so I guess that it, the running theme is what, is what surprised me and fascinated me more, that a building, its purpose can be forgotten, and yet something in its architecture allows it to continue to function in a certain way uh, through more than 100 years. Uh, and it's interesting to see now because the hotel has been purchased, it's been, it's been bought by a hotel developer who ordinarily, he owns a group of hotels that are ordinary New York hotels and also elsewhere, um, uh, and didn't really have an idea of what the Chelsea was when he bought it, but then read Patti Smith's book about her time there, Just Kids, and fell in love with the idea that he... He had, you know, partial ownership of this creative nexus here, and what, you know, what could he do with it? And, uh, you know, now he has—they've shut down the building for a gut renovation, and he's come up with all kinds of ideas that he wants to introduce to the Chelsea, like having a fellowship program so people from out of New York can come and live in the middle of the city, which would be amazing—a kind of yado, you know, program mm. in New York, which doesn't really exist um, to, to any large degree now. Um, so, you know, things like that, and then having uh, rooms for, you know, that are very expensive next to the cheapest rooms, which was an original uh, uh, thing that happened in the Chelsea, to, um, so that artists would meet art collectors and writers would meet, you know, publishers and so on. You could mix people together. And uh, so he's trying to copy the original design. And so I'm very curious to hmm. see if in spite of the fact that it's a kind of commercial operation, whether it will work anyway. Because it, no matter what has happened to the Chelsea over 130 years, it's continued to function in spite of everything, in spite of recessions and stagflation and, and the neighbors wanting it torn down and you know, um, a part, a partition of the rooms into 400 different rooms and the influx of drug dealers and rock and roll bands. No matter what has happened in the Chelsea, it's continued to function as a, as a creative factory. And so... Um, I'd like to see if now, in this new New York, which is so, such, uh, has exploded in a commercial way so much and has become so gentrified and so divided in terms of economic classes, it'll be fascinating to see if this artificial remake of the Chelsea will work naturally in the end anyway. I can't wait till it reopens. That's a great question, and it makes your book seem especially timely. Did you yeah. plan that? I mean, wh how are you aware of the timing and the, and the you know the climate? It, 
the ways in which you were working on this book, were you thinking that this was an especially important time to tell this story, and how no, how did that come into play? No, I um, I had uh, become interested. A number of friends had suggested that I look at the Chelsea oh, really? subject, <laughs> and I was resistant because, first of all, it's for it's so many rooms and so many years. It just seemed like such a complex project. Definitely. Um, but the first time I, I decided I would go in and talk to the then co-owner and manager Stanley Bard, who has worked there had worked there at the time for 50 years and is really responsible for a lot of the current you know atmosphere and reputation of the hotel and I went in to talk to him and uh, he was there with his with several other people working around him it was very chaotic and just told him I wanted to talk to him a little about the history and he's a very friendly guy who will talk to anyone about the history <laughs> of the hotel but right in the middle of telling me about his father who for, who owned it before him and so on he suddenly broke down and started saying they've kicked me off the board of directors they're trying to get rid of me they're trying to close down the hotel and sell it and I'm not going to let them. And this was the first I had heard that there was any change coming for the Chelsea Hotel. So the entire, and then he was he was fired, he was kicked out of the building, and the board of directors did sell it. And then it went through a series of changes and purchase, you know, new managers and new owners, and finally ended up with the, the current owner who has got renovating it. Uh, so the, this was a huge time of transition of about seven years, and that was the time period during which I was writing the book. So, uh, uh, you know, there, the wow. tenants were protesting, they were, many were being evicted, you know, it was a time of complete transition and chaos that I was writing this. So, so, at, so in the process, I did feel like somebody needed to point out what the worth of this place was, you know, so that it couldn't just be taken for granted and ignored and, you know, so that perhaps the people who ended up with it would realize the value of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'll see if it does We'll see what now. happens. Wow. So everybody who was living there had to move out in order for this renovation to take place. Not everyone. Okay. There are still about 80 people living there who have rent-stabilized leases and uh, casual as uh, the previous owner was about giving leases. It was all very you know, mm-hmm. easygoing. But they managed to get leased, rent-stabilized leases. They cannot be evicted. Everyone who can be evicted has already left. And some I people... See. Some people allowed themselves to be bought out, you know, and uh, which is legitimate in New York. Um, uh, so there are about 80 people left, but they really are, and I think the owner has come to realize this, they really are um, a vital part of the hotel because in fighting all of this transition all of these years, they, they've become the experts on the hotel's history and it's, it's uh, what it needs to keep on going. And so... When they reopen the hotel and the tourists come back in, and you know, um, they'll be looking for the genuine Chelsea, and those residents are the genuine Chelsea, and they are a real mix of people, well-known artists and uh, composers, uh, along with um, you know uh, people with mental problems who you know fortunately were able to keep their apartments too, and they have all. Uh, become a pretty tight community, sometimes divided though, you know, some mm. like any group of people. But, uh, but you know, they all know each other, they've all taken care of each other through all of these difficulties, and so they're like a, a tight little phalanx. Um, uh, <laughs> and uh, so when, when the, the hotel reopens, this, this group of people will, will carry the genuine Chelsea uh, traditions forward, I think. Uh, so they, they, they increase the chances that the Chelsea will survive in the way it's supposed to, I, I hope. 
Right. In your research, or maybe not in your research, have you come across a comparable place in another city or, you know, anything else that's really done what the Chelsea has done? Well, um, there, there are a lot of smaller ones, but I think the Chelsea is the largest and longest-lived artist community in the world that I have been able to find, and I keep waiting for someone to, to point out another one, but I haven't, <laughs> I haven't heard one yet. But there, are, yes, there are many, you know, and people keep saying, why don't you write about this one in Paris, and why, which I would love to do. <laughs> um, but uh, no, this is by far the largest experiment. It's, it's a mm. phenomenal uh, story, really, the, the, that uh, this could have been created at the time that it was uh, and have survived all these years in the most capitalist city mm. um, in the history of the world, I guess you could say. Um, one of our topics, as you know, is transformation. And as I was reading the book, it occurred to me that there was transformation happening in, in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. And I almost came away thinking that the hotel itself was maybe one of the least transformed and that what was really transforming was the city itself. Mm-hmm. And of course, people and careers were transformed. Mm-hmm. But the story about the transformation of New York City while the hotel remained yeah. open and intact during uh-huh. that seemed especially poignant. Yeah, and if you think of the Chelsea as an agent of transformation for the city, because you imagine uh, William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg uh, there with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who, you know, uh, chairman of the uh, communist, U.S. Communist Party. All of these people were mixing at the Chelsea and they were bringing in the un, undigested ideas outside, and the, the, the zeitgeist of the city around them, bringing these ideas in and sort of churning them in their artistic process and producing the books and the plays and the um, you know, treatises and the paintings that, that in turn changed the city itself. And so it's really hard to imagine the city having become the creative uh, uh, capital that it became without this little factory sitting, you know, like uh, sitting in, at its heart, without all of these people congregating and processing. Um, it's uh, so. So I think that that it, it is a transforming agent in itself mm-hmm. as it's as it's transformed because it always mirrors what's uh, what's outside its doors. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. So that's that's another reason why I'm I can't wait for it to reopen because it's such a different city now than it was during the Depression era and during the 1950s and the 1960s. Now we're a very different city, and we need to have the Chelsea as our mirror, you know, to show us what we are. You know, mm. uh, what do you think? Um, what What are some important things that you hope people take away from this book? Because there are so many stories. And I imagine there's lots of different ways to read all of these different stories. And I think also people probably have their favorite creative characters that they're excited to read about because you mentioned so many Mm -hmm. interesting people. Um, I guess one question is, did you have your favorite person whose story you were following? Um, And the second part is, why, why is it important? to remember these stories. Well, I love the painter John Sloan. He was a uh, realist painter of New York, and he was very passionate, uh, a very passionate socialist as well, so he fit right into the uh, gestalt of the, of the building. 
uh, and he had a studio on the top floor of the Chelsea and was um, teaching at the Art Students League while he lived there. He was older at that point. And all of his wonderful paintings of turn of the century, early 20th century New York that are in all the museums now, he, couldn't, he still couldn't sell them. You know, they were decades old at that point, and he was known for them, but they were unfashionable. So they were all hidden behind the curtains in his studio in New York. And he was very gruff. He and Edgar Lee Masters came up with a plan um, to make, they thought that uh, art should be made illegal, American art should be made illegal, as in alcohol and prohibition, and they should only sell it secretly offshore on ships, and people should have to row out to the shore and buy their American art and bring it back, and if it was forbidden, then people would want it, and then their, you know, John Stone's <laughs> career would take off. <laughs> And, and you could find your way there. One of the wonderful aspects of the Chelsea also was the mentorship. There's so many people found Patti Smith. You know, her book um, provides examples of that right and left. But uh, um, so many people I know now at the Chelsea, you know, were, were mentored by Virgil Thompson, the composer, and, and uh, you know, um, Harry Smith. The he was maybe one of my favorite characters. Oh, he, was, he was one of my favorites. Really? Too. <laughs> so Harry Smith was like a kind of mystic magician, yes. artist, mu- composer, yeah. musician. I mean, he's kind of he was unclassifiable, he did so right? Many things, yeah. He but was, he was sort of like a go-to person. It seemed like yeah, he, he, he attracted a circle of, of uh, young people, including Leonard Cohen. Uh, Leonard Cohen was in love with Nico um, when he was at the Chelsea, and and uh, it was an unrequited love. He couldn't get Nico to pay attention to him at all, and so he would go to Harry Smith to get love spells um, to, to oh cast gosh, over Nico. So fantastic! You know, um, so Harry was a bit of a of a wizard, mm-hmm. but he had created the American anthology of American folk music, which was which which really was one of the the uh, collections of old folk songs. Uh, that that uh, uh, sparked the folk music uh, movement through, in New York through, uh, and he did that when he was a young man. Then he became an underground filmmaker, and he was he was a collector, an obsessive collector. And uh, while he was at the Chelsea, he was making during the 70s a film about uh, the end of civilization. It was an adaptation of Kurt Weill's uh, uh, Mahogany opera, operetta Mahogany. And uh, he, Patti Smith was in it, and uh, Robert Maplethorpe performed in the film. All the people in the Chelsea were in this film, and it was a, it was it was a story of 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 civilization dying, and it was his story of the United, of the dream of you know the idealistic dream of the United States and the dream of New York City in particular. He was it took him forever to finish the film, so mm. he was making it all through the 1970s, and. Uh, so yeah, he he was uh, absolutely, and so he he attracted people to him because he had this big grand vision of what New York was, and he was one of those big processors of all of the energy in the bad '70s in New York. So yeah, he was, and probably he was my favorite character, and a good representative for the for the book itself because yeah. he was so yeah. focused on what was happening around at the time. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.